Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for joining us on Holocaust Remembrance Day. I'd ask that you each please turn off your cell phones right now. And welcome to those of you who are joining us online. The facts are crystal clear and undeniable. Anti-Semitism is rising around the globe, leading to more violent attacks and increasing among the young. In 2018, violent anti-Semitism went up by 74% in France and 70% in Germany. Jews are voting with their feet by moving out of Europe to Israel and elsewhere. In 2017, the FBI reported that the number of violent anti-Semitic attacks in America rose by 37%. And a recent poll showed that two-thirds of American millennials are not familiar with Auschwitz and the fact that one million Jews died there under the Nazis. There is an understandable but misguided reaction to these trends, and that is to silence hateful voices. But respectfully, that is not the right answer. Hate speech laws have never driven out hate anywhere, and they've only driven it underground to fester and grow. A better path would be to fight lies, hate, and ignorance with truth through relationships and through more public expressions of faith. But to do that, we will need more freedom, not less. Holocaust denial and apathy can be met with more public discussions of the Holocaust and its origins, anti-Semitic statements in Congress and cartoons in prominent newspapers like the New York Times, which suggests that the U.S. government is controlled by Israel and that Jewish Americans have dual loyalties can be met with facts about the strategic alignment between Israel and the U.S. due to our shared values of democratic governance and individual liberties. And finally, social media, where the attackers of the Tree of, of Life Synagogue and Chabad of Poway, social media where they found fuel for their hatred, can also be a place to engage those who live in fear of the other. And it can be a place to share what Judaism teaches, what has happened in Jewish history, and the contributions of Jews in America. After being shot on the last day of Passover, Rabbi Israel Goldstein of the Chabad of Poway said, Never again. You can't break us. We are strong. Let us honor those who have given their lives, like Lori Kay, who died defending her rabbi in her house of worship, by using our freedom and our lives to protect religious freedom and the freedom of expression for Jewish people and for people of all faiths here and around the world. Our moderator today is Joel Griffith. 
He's a research fellow in Heritage's Rowe Institute for Economic Freedom and Opportunity. Joel is an attorney and a former equities trader. He's published widely on economic affairs, and he frequently appears on TV. He's also written several articles about rising anti-Semitism in the Daily Signal, including a piece yesterday entitled, Lies Are Fueling the Rise of Anti-Semitism. Um, on behalf of the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society and the Heritage Foundation, I welcome you again and turn the panel over to Joel. Thank you. Thank you, Emily, and thank you to the Voss Center for hosting this today and to our panelists for all being here to speak on this important topic. And thanks to all of you for being here and showing your concern and to see how we can all be engaged in order to, to fight this scourge. So each of our panelists today are here and are going to speak. And then uh, Representative Zeldin should be here um, within the hour. And then we'll have a uh, time for each of you to ask any questions you'd like of our panelists. So let's start out with uh, Rabbi Andrew Baker. Thank you for being here today. Um, Rabbi Baker is Director of International Jewish Affairs at the American Jewish Committee. Uh, he has many other additional roles, past and present, including past president of the Washington Board of Rabbis and the Interfaith uh, Conference in Washington, D.C., um, but at AJC, he is responsible for building out that network of international relationships with Jewish communities across the globe. Um, Rabbi Baker spends a lot of time in Europe and also building relationships with those of other faiths and other backgrounds. Uh, he has been a prominent figure in international efforts. Um, in fact, he was appointed in January of 2009 at uh, the, um, I'm sorry, at the, uh, uh, at the Office of Combating Anti-Semitism at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. In fact, he's still in that role 10 years later and has been recognized for the wonderful work he's done by a number of presidents, including the president of Germany, the president of Lithuania, the president of Latvia, and the president of Romania. So thanks for all the good work you've done, and we look forward to hearing your remarks. Thanks. Should I here or here? Um, right here. Okay. As Joel said, a lot of my focus has been on Europe. And uh, I want to put this in, in a bit of a perspective. Uh, it was literally 20 years ago, in advance of what was to take place a year later, a international United Nations conference on combating racism in Durban, that Jewish organizations in Europe and also from the U.S. gathered in Strasbourg. Uh, literally, this was a time with other groups generally, to try and suggest elements that should be part of that conference. And if you look back and ask, well, what were the concerns of the Jewish communities? What did they see as anti-Semitism and a problem? Uh, you had an incredibly different picture than what I think we all recognize today. I think for many people, it was more even a matter of, well, it's, it's an historical problem. People were concerned you still had uh, Holocaust denial uh, at different parts of Europe, mostly Western Europe. There was a need to recognize, but I think generally a feeling that societies did that from the extreme right, political uh, right movements, neo-Nazi groups, always anti-Semitism was a piece of that, but at the same time, it seemed to be increasingly diminishing. Now, we had already enormous changes in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, uh, very much a, an optimistic feeling that 
Jewish life in Europe was becoming more open, more visible, uh, more uh, centered on uh, advancing uh, Jewish life in the uh, larger uh, society and, and political sphere. And I think if you asked the people there, is security a problem? Very few people would have said yes. Uh, there were issues of terrorism from the Middle East, but other than that, it was not on anyone's radar screen. And yet, literally a year later, we saw what Durban turned into, really a place that was supposed to be a conference to combat racism, and it really fomented certainly anti-Semitism. People who were there were quite shocked. And then we saw, not much longer after that, a surge in anti-Semitic incidents in Western Europe, in Belgium, in France, in the Netherlands. Uh, Jewish communities, uh, really for the first time in decades, uh, uh, dealing with physical attacks, uh, verbal harassment, and governments that, quite frankly, didn't recognize it. Uh, there are some legitimate reasons for not recognizing it. I know we'll talk later on this panel about data on hate crimes, but at that time, most governments in Europe didn't even acknowledge such a thing as a hate crime, let alone have the ability, police and, and authorities to monitor, to record hate crimes, let alone to record them and then disaggregate them so one could see well, what was the level of anti-Semitic attacks. You also had governments, political leaders, that were denying that these attacks were even themselves anti-Semitic. We saw in France attacks on synagogues, school buses with Jewish kids, and yet and we had some of our own meetings with uh, French leaders, the foreign minister and others at the time, telling us, but this isn't anti-Semitism. You know, these people are, well, they're, they're motivated by uh, the conflict in the Middle East, as though somehow that explained it, uh, maybe for some even justified it. So in a, in a very strange trajectory, people were saying to us, well, you know, Ariel Sharon, he walked on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. He's to blame. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Jews themselves were beginning to say, the life we thought we had here is now, is now open to question. So a lot of things came together in those couple of years where ultimately no one could deny that something had changed, uh, that there was such a spate of incidents uh, throughout, again, mostly Western Europe, but not exclusively, that you had to pay attention to them. And I know part of this discussion wants to focus on, well, what governments can do, and that's sort of where I want to go. We saw in the end that the OSCE, the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe, one of those unique international bodies that brings together at the same table the United States with all of Europe, with all of the former Soviet Union, could potentially be a place to deal with this. There are a lot of efforts to simply say, have a conference to look at the problem of anti-Semitism. The OSCE, which now is an organization of 57 governments, 57 participating states, that makes decisions by consensus, was not an easy one to agree on anything, let alone what would become the very first conference of any international organization focused exclusively on anti-Semitism. But that did happen. It took place in 2003. And, and we should always keep in mind it happened in large measure because of a push from here in Washington. 
And that wasn't easy either. People who knew the OSCE, people in government, at State Department, it's too complicated. Maybe they can do a little focused discussion here as part of a larger meeting. It really uh, meant we had to rely on Congress. And I know when Representative Zeldin is here, he can reflect on that. But it really required on getting Congress to push the administration to say, do something. That first conference was notable, first, because it was a conference. Uh, but at the end of it, the German delegation stood up and said, we want to host a follow-up conference in Berlin. This would be in 2004. And that really was where things gelled. You had uh, the German government placing itself squarely on saying things need to be done. Uh, the OSCE gathering in Berlin, we were then represented uh, by uh, Secretary of State uh, Colin Powell. Most governments sent their foreign ministers. And the conference included what came to be known as the Berlin Declaration on Combating Antisemitism. So for the first time, governments uh, expressed a commitment to collect data on hate crime, including on anti-Semitic crimes, and to do something vis-a-vis -vis education. And much of the focus then was, still today, on education regarding the Holocaust. And to really uh, press uh, for the training of police, of law enforcement, in dealing with hate crimes, in knowing how to respond uh, to the victims of these crimes. And that declaration notably indicated two important milestones. It spoke of anti-Semitism taking on new forms and manifestations. That itself was a reference to what we had seen evolve in just a few years, anti-Semitism as it relates to Israel. Frankly, when Israel itself as a Jewish state is demonized, when its very existence is called into question, when analogies are drawn between Israel and the Nazis, we can all say this isn't simply anti-Semitism. Now at that point, this was as far as a consensus declaration could go, but the people who drafted it, the people who endorsed it, understood that this was now at least the beginning of referencing this. And the declaration itself went on to say events in the Middle East, conflicts with uh, uh, the state of Israel, can never justify anti-Semitism. And in a way, it was a rebuke to some of the very same political leaders who only some months earlier were almost doing just that. So that was itself a milestone. Ultimately, the OSCE uh, dedicated uh, uh, annual uh, programs and uh, future conferences and ultimately created a position uh, a somewhat complicated title, personal representative of the OSCE chairmanship and office on combating anti-Semitism. Uh, it was created in 2005, and as Joel noted, in 2009 I was asked to uh, serve in that role. It's a one-year position, but I have been reappointed now for my 11th year. Uh, I feel it's a, it's a reflection of... Uh, the, the various participating states' confidence in me, but frankly, it's also a reflection that we haven't uh, solved this problem. And, and this is, to me, the great irony. If we go back, we look over these years, there are very good, tangible steps that international organizations and governments have taken. We were pushing in 2004 for a comprehensive 
definition of anti-Semitism, something that has become known as the working definition of anti-Semitism that explains it and explains it in its various forms, including, as I mentioned before, as it relates to Israel. It was uh, presented by uh, an EU organization, the Center uh, on Racism and Xenophobia, but ultimately it has developed more attention, more endorsements. It's now referred to as the IRA working definition since it's been adopted by the (coughs) International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. In any case, understanding anti-Semitism is the first step to get governments to deal with the problem. When the EUMC did its first study of Jews in the EU in 2004, it interviewed Jewish leaders. It looked at what data was available, which was frankly minimal. But it found Jews themselves were expressing a level of anxiety, of fear, that we had not seen in decades. And there was real question on how to account for that. And frankly, there were people who were saying, well, uh, the, these these Jewish leaders are uh, they're exaggerating the problem. They don't really understand. They're, they're they're making too much of it. I think we've seen what's followed. It's quite the opposite. I, I have often said they had antenna that could see things coming that maybe others at the time didn't yet recognize. But as was noted, we've seen a surge of incidents in anti-Semitism, and they haven't declined even though governments have been doing more and more about it. First problem, they have to identify. They have to know where the sources are of this problem. And they are coming from different parts of society. It's not general. Uh, There is, and now in more recent years, certainly a problem of anti-Semitism from the right. Political parties with anti-Semitic themes uh, are, are, are a real presence in Europe. Uh, And even if we push them back in Central and Eastern Europe 25 years ago, they're returning. Uh, And they are significant in Europe as the European enterprise itself uh, begins to uh, wane. But uh, the real issue had been for a number of Western European countries, anti-Semitism coming from parts of the Arab and Muslim communities. And governments have, some even today, have been unwilling to really recognize this. In some countries, there's even legal restrictions. France's laicite, uh, secularity laws make it, at least as a government, unable to identify people by religion. One a Jewish leader had said to me, maybe what they should do is just publish the first names of the perpetrators who've been arrested for anti-Semitic incidents, because those names uh, would tell you something. In, in some other countries... Uh, Sweden, for example, where it's been a significant problem also from this segment in the society, the government has really, until recently, chosen not to recognize this. One of my meetings with the head of the uh, bureau that monitors all hate crimes in Sweden, very effective uh, operation, uh, I asked, because they can say with precision how many incidents of anti-Semitism occur in Sweden, can you tell me something about the perpetrators? And she said to me, well, we can, but the government has to ask us. And and at that point, the government, I want to say, didn't really want to know. Uh, Maybe we can have some sympathy. We understand. Uh, There are a lot of tensions anyway. It would feed nationalist right-wing parties 
in these countries. But at the same time, Jewish communities themselves uh, certainly could have no confidence if their own governments wouldn't recognize the source of a problem, that they would be up to doing something about it. So, th- so that had really a lot of our focus in, in pushing uh, governments recognize this. Now, there have been two major surveys conducted by the EU Agency for Fundamental Rights, known as FRA. It was a successor to that first EUMC body. And in 2012, they looked at Jewish experiences and attitudes in uh, (coughs) nine EU countries. And they did a second survey last year in 12 countries. You can find the the details. I mean, they're extensive surveys, uh, but they really prove something. Namely, those Jews who answered that first survey in 2004 knew something. You looked at the experience, and significant percentages of Jews fearful of anti-Semitic attacks or incidents. A third not wanting to wear anything that would identify them in public as being a Jew. It struck me that if you read the the remarks of Rabbi Goldstein uh, from California, he said, I'm proudly walking down the street. I'm going to wear my my tzitzis. I'm going to make sure everyone knows that I'm Jewish. In, In Sweden, the majority of Jews don't want to be identified as Jews in public. A third say we're not going to Jewish events or, or Jewish uh, buildings for fear of being attacked or being harassed. Uh, this is a reality. Uh, so the question becomes, what are governments doing? Uh, there have been a real, there's been a real push, and there's been success in, in the first step, getting governments to provide security. If, if all governments, at the very least, acknowledge the principle of religious freedom in their society, well, if you're fearful of going to synagogue, uh, that suggests that there's a problem with religious freedom. So one aspect has been recognize their security needs. They're unique. may not be for Jews only, but in significant measure, depending on the country, it's a real issue. And governments that at one point weren't doing anything, are doing more now. Whether it's providing police protection, whether it's providing uh, financial support for enhanced security uh, in the uh, synagogues and schools. But again, the problem is is still with us. We've changed some of the mindset. Uh, Only uh, four months before the attack in Copenhagen uh, in 2015 that killed the Jewish community security Guard, I had met with with political leadership in Denmark. I raised the issue because there was no police protection, and the Jewish community said to me they would like to see that. And I was told, "Well, Rabbi, here in Denmark, people would be upset if they saw armed guards in front of these buildings." So it was at that time almost the sense of saying, "Well." The society would be unnerved, not saying these institutions didn't need security, but that somehow they were balancing that against what does this image convey. Well, thankfully, thankfully, I mean, one person died because of this. 
But at least as a result, we don't have that today in Denmark. And I think that's been our struggle. And then, because I don't want to abuse my time, uh, let me just say, we have issues about education. At the same point where you say, if we have to get a clear picture of from where anti-Semitism comes, that ought to be a piece of how we address uh, a long-term solution to this. How do you change attitudes? We've had a lot of difficulty, but now more we do have attitude surveys in Europe that can be uh, used to focus on different parts of society. So what people knew anecdotally, what the far surveys reflected when they polled Jews, we now know more empirically. Uh, Muslims or people with a more is- Islamist point of view, where we've had surveys, do have a higher level of anti-Jewish attitudes. Something needs to be done to address that. There are some initial efforts, but you have to recognize it first. And again, we see the uh, the increase of support for right-wing political movements, the role of social media that has bolstered them. It may not always be that anti-Semitism is the first item uh, on the agenda of these parties, but it's there. In fact, it's probably the one thread that runs through all of them. So we need to recognize that as well. And of course, and finally, there is an anti-Semitism from the left. That was what was so important of that piece of the working definition, where, where Israel somehow becomes the very target, where, where Israel, as uh, my, my, my friend Erwin Cutler, uh, human rights uh, lawyer and former attorney general in Canada, said, it, it's Israel as the Jew among the nations. So the very kind of anti-Semitism that would be expressed about Jews would now be expressed in a way where Israel becomes the personification of this. But that has an impact on attitudes in society. And it's a corrosive impact. It's not just when it comes to rhetoric. It does really make Jews less safe. Where you literally have had demonstrations on the part of some Jewish organizations in Europe to express support or solidarity with Israel being shut down by police who say, we can't provide for your protection. Or where you have demonstrations that may start as a uh, uh, pro-Palestinian, pro-Arab manifestation, but have turned into outright anti-Semitic expressions and slogans, and even turning to attack synagogues. So understanding this piece... And the idea that we do have this anti-Semitism on the left uh, is a presence, again, in much of Europe. The, the irony, the challenge is that you can look at groups in society, far right, uh, far left, uh, Muslim, Arab populations that otherwise have nothing in common, but what they do have in common is, is anti-Semitism. So this is our challenge. As I said, I think there are, and we can point to them maybe in the discussion in more detail, very concrete steps that more and more governments are taking. They are recognizing the problem at the least, doing things, but the problem is not diminishing. So you could sort of, sometimes I begin with this, I'll end with this. If things are so good, why are they so bad? Because in fact, they're both. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. And it's also good to see Congressman Zeldin joining us as well. Thank you. 
Our next speaker is Max Samarov, who arrived today from beautiful Santa Barbara, California, or last night. Uh, Max graduated from the University of California with a degree in political science and international relations. He began his career uh, interning on Capitol Hill for Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler, but he moved on to the world of countering anti-Semitism on college campuses. He is currently Executive Director of Research and Strategy at Stand With Us, spends his days researching, but also engaged on the front lines of this, and we have him here today to talk about what that looks like on the college campuses in the United States. Thanks so much, and it's great to be here with you all. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, Stand With Us is an international Israel education organization, nonprofit, nonpartisan, 18 offices around the world. Uh, we are inspired by our love of Israel, our belief that education is the road to peace, and our commitment to stand up for Israel and the Jewish people when they are attacked or misrepresented. So that's why we educate people of all ages and faiths around the world about Israel, and that's why I'm here with you today. So in the course of my work on campuses, I recently came across the story of Josh Eibelman, a Jewish student at Cornell. You can look his story up in the Alga Minor. It's called Experiencing Anti-Semitism at Cornell. Like my family, Josh's parents and grandparents faced anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union and left to build a better life, one where their kids wouldn't have to grow up facing the same discrimination and hatred that they did. And we certainly are in a dramatically better place than we were only decades ago. I believe the Jewish people should be proud and hopeful for our future. We are not victims. And yet, despite our strength and vitality, Josh's story illustrates the rising hatred that we are up against. It speaks to the fact that we can't take anything for granted if we want to remain a thriving and empowered community. So let's look at Josh's experiences. In 10th grade, Josh was called a, quote, filthy rat in the Daily Stormer, a vicious neo-Nazi site that frequently targets Jews for online harassment. As a high school senior, his friend Ezra Schwartz was murdered by a Palestinian terrorist for being Jewish. Last year, as a sophomore at Cornell, he saw far-right anti-Semitic posters appear across campus. Later that same year, one of his neighbors told another student that Hitler should have finished killing the Jews. According to Josh, things got even worse during this academic year. Imagine that. Two weeks after the Tree of Life massacre in Pittsburgh, swastikas appeared across the Cornell campus. Then, a Cornell student called him, quote, Jewish scum on social media. Most recently, Cornell Students for Justice in Palestine, or SJP, launched a boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign against Israel in the form of student government legislation. While the resolution was ultimately defeated, a lot of damage was done along the way. Josh reports that the BDS campaign included, included false accusations that Chabad, a non-political Jewish group, was engaging in, quote, shady politics. It also included SJP members accusing their opponents of being, quote, Zios, which is an anti-Semitic slur popularized by the KKK. Josh's story is harrowing and hard to imagine. It certainly does not reflect my experiences as a Jewish student at UC Santa Barbara who graduated eight years ago. Clearly, things have changed. According to the ADL, incidents of campus anti-Semitism rose by 89% from 2016 to 2017. In 2018, the number of incidents remained at a similarly high level. Josh's story illustrates this trend 
And it also reveals the wide range of threats we face on campus and beyond. Modern anti-Semitism comes from three main sources, as Rabbi Baker mentioned. The far right, radical Islamist groups, and the far left. Josh was personally targeted by a neo-Nazi site. His friend was murdered in an act of jihadist terror. He witnessed far-left anti-Semitism in action during the Cornell BDS campaign. To fight these different forms of hate, we have to understand how they manifest. First, let's look at far-right anti-Semitism. Far-right racism in general is partly driven by an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, which sees Jews as manipulators who use immigrants, people of color, the LGBTQ community, feminists, and others to bring about the downfall or even, quote, genocide of white people. As ridiculous as this sounds, the white supremacist terrorist who murdered Lori Gilbert Kay in a San Diego synagogue this past weekend was inspired by this virulent strain of anti-Semitism. Since we're talking about campuses, it's worth noting that he was a 19-year-old student at a branch of Cal State University. Imagine being a student there right now. It's clear that far-right racism presents a serious threat to the lives of American Jews and many others in this country. And while we thankfully haven't seen a similar terrorist attack targeting Jewish students on campus, I I believe we have to be more vigilant than ever going forward. That's because, according to the ADL, From September 2017 to May 2018, there were 292 documented cases of white supremacist propaganda on campuses. We know campuses are a target for these extremists, as evidenced by the infamous 2017 march at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. History has shown us over and over again how hate speech can lead to violence. And once violence begins, it can multiply. In his manifesto, the San Diego shooter said that he decided to act after seeing the recent massacre against Muslims in New Zealand. As such, we may see this evil snowball with white supremacists getting radicalized online and using each attack as fuel for the next one. Unfortunately, far-right anti-Semitism is not the only physical threat we need to be aware of. There's also anti-Semitism from radical Islamist and jihadist groups. This past week, the FBI stopped a terror plot in Los Angeles. A U.S. Army veteran who had converted to Islam became radicalized and planned a bombing. Among the targets he considered were Jews. While we're fortunate that such terrorists haven't successfully targeted Jewish students before, the danger is there. And even without violence, anti-Semitism from radical Islamists is a problem on campuses. For example, in 2017, at a mosque across the street from UC Davis, University of California, an imam delivered a sermon calling for the annihilation of the Jews. Jewish students asked the administration to speak out about this, but were met with silence. Furthermore, one of the main sources of support for anti-Israel campaigns on campus is an off-campus group called American Muslims for Palestine, or AMP. AMP officials have historic ties to Hamas, and AMP leaders and speakers have also engaged in anti-Semitism, homophobia, denial of the Armenian genocide, and praise for jihadist terrorist groups. Fortunately, AMP seems to represent only a small percentage of American Muslims, and there are many schools where Muslim and Jewish students have good relationships. However, there are also campuses where AMP and other extremists have had a deeply harmful influence. If you'd like more info about this, you can look up an article I wrote titled, Who's Really Driving? grassroots anti-Israel activism in America. While AMP clearly has radical Islamist roots, it also works with other groups that promote far-left anti-Semitism on campus. 
far-left anti-Semitism is a unique challenge. On the one hand, this brand of hate is less of an immediate threat to the lives of American Jews than white supremacy or Islamist extremism. And that's good. We certainly don't need more people plotting ways to kill us. On the other hand, this is by far the easiest brand of anti-Semitism to promote on campus. Most students recognize and reject the blatant hatred and violence of white supremacists and radical Islamists. What they don't recognize, what they often don't recognize, is anti-Semitism masked in the language of anti-racism, social justice, progressivism, and human rights. For me, this is especially personal because many of the far-left anti-Semitic tropes we hear today have their roots in propaganda spread by the Soviet Union starting in the 1960s. The same anti-Semitic regime that my family worked so hard to escape. The Soviets pushed their hate throughout the, glo their hate throughout the global left. They compared Zionism, the liberation movement of the Jewish people, to Nazism, a movement which nearly exterminated the Jewish people. They conceived the infamous 1975 Zionism is Racism resolution at the UN. They spread slanderous analogies between Israel, white supremacy, and the apartheid regime in South Africa. They amplified the idea that Jews are colonial intruders in Israel with no rights to a state of their own, rather than an indigenous people who have every right to self-determination in their ancestral home. Throughout these propaganda campaigns, the Soviets relied on classic anti-Semitic imagery, which often echoed Nazi cartoons in style and substance. The aim was to turn the Jewish state into a global symbol of oppression, imperialism, and racism, a symbol of the greatest evils in the world. Today, long after the fall of the Soviet Union, these anti-Semitic ideas still hold sway on far too many campuses. One of the main forces pushing this hate is the Global Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, BDS, which started right around 2001 uh, with the Durban Conference that Rabbi Baker talked about. BDS is a global campaign which seeks to demonize, delegitimize, and isolate Israel in hopes that it will collapse as a Jewish and democratic state. Leading BDS activists have openly stated that this is their goal. BDS targets many different parts of society, but they focus on campuses because that is where future leaders and opinion makers form their views of the world. They do this through the student group SJP and through anti-Israel faculty with much off-campus support. BDS hopes that spreading dehumanizing propaganda on American campuses will erode the foundations of the U.S.-Israel relationship and ultimately lead to Israel down Israel's downfall. While campus BDS campaigns are not always well organized, when successful, they can cause lasting damage. When a BDS resolution is introduced to a student government or a BDS referendum is voted on by a student body, it's not just a, deb a debate about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Anti-Israel activists are selling themselves as fighters for justice and smearing Jewish students and students who support Israel as defenders of oppression. If they succeed, you get Jewish students being excluded from progressive causes they care about simply because they believe in Israel's right to exist. You get Rachel Beda, a student who applied for a judicial board position in the UCLA student government, being questioned by pro-BDS senators about her ability to remain unbiased due to her identity as a Jew. You get a University of Michigan professor telling a Jewish student that she deserves a letter of recommendation, but he won't write one for her because she wants to study abroad in Israel. Sometimes, when Jewish students call this hatred out for what it is, they do get support on campus. But there are also far too many cases where their concerns are dismissed or downplayed. Why? 
primarily because of the idea that Jews are white, privileged, not deserving of the same attention as other minorities, and even complicit in the systems of oppression that progressive activists are fighting against. And so we are caught in the middle. If the anti-Semitism comes from the far right, Jews who immigrated from Europe are not really white and deserve to be killed or expelled from America. If the anti-Semitism is coming from the left, we are attacked or dismissed as privileged white people who perpetuate white supremacy. So, how do we fight this toxic brew of anti-Semitism? I believe the first step is educating people and being proactive. All the dehumanizing propaganda in the world won't work if we stand our ground and show people who we actually are. As such, Stand With Us trains and empowers high school and college students, and now even middle school students, to tell their own story, educate about Israel and the Jewish people, and build relationships with their peers across North America and the UK. We believe that to overcome toxic narratives on campus, we have to tell a compelling story of our own. Jews are a people who built a thriving civilization and culture in ancient Israel, who were crushed by imperial powers and had to overcome 1,900 years of brutal oppression across Europe and the Middle East, who, despite everything, managed to regain their freedom and build thriving communities and cultures in Israel and America, which make the world a better place. I believe all of us, or sorry, what our story represents is universal proof that if you will it, it is no dream, that people can overcome the challenges that they face. I believe all of us can play a role in telling that story, and I also believe it should inspire us to work together with others who are struggling to build a better society. If Jewish students are proactive, there is no reason why they can't build coalitions with diverse groups on campus and fight far-left and far-right anti-Semitism together with them. Of course, this isn't enough on its own. A lot of anti-Semitism among young people is the result of ignorance rather than genuine hatred. So we have to drastically increase education about anti-Semitism in all its forms. That's why we just produced a short booklet about modern anti-Semitism and distributed it widely across the country. You can find it online at standwithus.com booklets. It's why we frequently use our social media pages, which reach over 100 million people during peak weeks, to educate about anti-Semitism. And it's why one of the most common presentations Stand With Us does for high school and college students is anti-Semitism versus legitimate criticism, where we teach about how to distinguish criticism of Israeli policy from the three Ds of anti-Semitism. On that note, I want to applaud Ken Marcus, who is the Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights at the Department of Education. Because of his leadership, the DOE has adopted a comprehensive definition of anti-Semitism, which includes demonizing Israel, denying Israel's right to exist, and holding Israel to a double standard. This means that if a Jewish student faces discrimination and the university fails to take action, the DOE, ha the DOE has a clear definition to use when investigating that incident. This is also a useful tool for the Stand With Us legal department, which frequently assists students and faculty who face violations of their rights on campus. In addition to education and legal tools, we have to organize politically when campaigns of hate like BDS appear on campus. On that front, my colleagues and I work closely with the Israel on Campus Coalition, Hillel, and our other partners to empower students to defeat BDS. And I'm happy to say that more often than not, our community wins those votes. I also have a relatively new opportunity to share with you. How many people here graduated from a university in the United States? Show of hands. Most of you. Great. So we have a partner organization called Alums for Campus Fairness, which is dedicated to supporting Jewish students and fighting anti-Semitism. 
They're actively looking for alumni to join existing chapters and to start new ones, so I would encourage you to reach out to them. It's called Alums for Campus Fairness. Before I conclude, I want to acknowledge that the solutions I presented are not comprehensive. There is no magic bullet or one-size-fits-all solution to this problem. When it comes to white supremacist and jihadist violence, we have to rely on law enforcement to stop those threats. And unfortunately, I also think it's time to invest in self-defense and active shooter training for our communities on campus. It's sad but true. That said, I want to reiterate a point I made at the beginning. Despite the threats we face, the Jewish people today are not victims. My grandmother was tortured by the KGB because of her efforts to get my family and others out of the Soviet Union. She made sacrifices and survived pain that I can't imagine so that I could be here today. And I'm sure that many of you have similar stories in your family's past. If we can summon even a fraction of the resilience of those who came before us, a fraction of the determination, a fraction of the hope, we will overcome the rising hate we face, just as Israel and the Jewish people have done for so many generations. Thank you. Thank you, Max. Our next speaker is Congressman Lee Zeldin, and I know you've been dodging, not dodging, you've been attending a lot of votes this morning, so thank you for being here with a very tight schedule. Uh, since taking office in 2015, Congressman Zeldin has quickly become a leading voice for a stronger, more consistent foreign policy. Um, he has strongly led uh, the, um, um, the, the fight to defeat ISIS and other terrorist threats and to draw awareness of the need to further secure our homeland. He also opposed very strongly the deeply flawed Iran agreement several years ago and continued that opposition up until we finally pulled out of it. Con <laughs> Congressman Zeldin serves on two committees in the House of Representatives, Financial Services and also the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Where, uh, and he's the ranking member also on the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. Uh, lastly, Congressman Zeldin is one of two Jewish Republicans currently in Congress, and he serves as the chair of the House Republican Israel Caucus. That caucus has over 100 members. So thank you for your leadership, and thank you for being here today. Well, thanks, sir. Uh, great to be with uh, everybody here on the panel. Thank you for coming out. It's fitting that we're here on Yom HaShoah. It's Holocaust Remembrance Day, and it's a day for our country to reflect, for the uh, the world to reflect, to be reminded, to remember, uh, and ensure in today's conversation, and certainly very grateful for the Heritage Foundation's leadership uh, in ensuring that we're doing our part today to identify what threats are out there, uh, not just reflecting and remembering, but I identifying what threats are out there today uh, talking about solutions uh, of how to confront those threats and how to crush those threats. Uh, there are some who pursue the or prefer the tactic of uh, empowering, elevating, embracing uh, people, policies, rhetoric that would set us in the wrong direction. Um, but it is incredibly important for us to do our part to fight back. You can't be silent in the face of anti-Semitism and expect it to die off. Actually, what ends up happening is that the ranks grow. They feel 
increased strength to promote more of their anti-Semitic rhetoric. I agree that the BDS movement is a is a threat that if it's not defeated will just continue to grow in the name of legitimate, reasonable criticism of the Israeli government, uh, as has been so eloquently stated before me. You have innocent Jews on college campuses who are being targeted by blatant anti-Semitism, and that's in the name of legitimate, reasonable criticism of the Israeli government. It is an American value to be critical of our own government. By the way, it doesn't even have to be reasonable. You can be critical of the Israeli government. You can be critical of any government that you wish in the world. That's okay. What's not okay is in the name of that criticism to be subjecting innocent students, whether it be in California, whether it's in Michigan, uh, whether we, we see it at home and hear stories from Columbia, NYU, and, and elsewhere. And it's sad when you talk to a student who's telling you not only about one professor who puts up a map of the Middle East where it says Palestine instead of Israel, they'll tell you about multiple professors. Or that student, that Long Islander who's going to school in Michigan who wanted to study abroad but when, and the, got a yes as a response until the professor found out it was to study abroad in Israel and then the yes became a no because of the BDS movement. The stories come from coast to coast, including uh, at home where I'm in in New York. It's also infiltrating American politics. And it's infiltrating the halls of Congress. As was mentioned, I serve on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And I'm going to say some uncomfortable things, but this is a conversation for us to be honest with each other. I was the first member of Congress to speak out when freshman Congressman Elon Omar from Minnesota was appointed to the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I don't think she should have been appointed to the committee in the first place, and that was before all of the different anti-Semitic statements, some that she apologized for, some she refuses to apologize for. The new position now is no more backing down, no apologies. That was the message to come from a rally that took place in front of the United States Capitol this week. So the last time that we had a conversation in our country about uh, the all, all about the Benjamins remark uh, that was made by Congresswoman Omar, there was no apologies. Um, and then the previous time when there was an unequivocal apology, if you go back and read it, it was filled with equivocation. So now more people have called for removal of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I was calling for a resolution to be passed and name names. White supremacy was discussed um, earlier. In January, there was a resolution that passed nearly unanimously on the House floor condemning white supremacy, naming names. It's almost unanimous. There's only one person who voted against it, and that person voted against it because it didn't go far enough. The member that was referenced in that resolution was a Republican. In this case, the resolution was watered down. It became a spineless all-hate-matters resolution, filled with moral equivocation and filled with double standards. If Congressman Omar was a Republican, it would have named names. It would have been singularly, emphatically, forcefully focused on condemning anti-Semitism, and she would have been removed from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. There was a responsibility, and I'm using this as an example because it's Quite frankly, it's the question that I was asked about what is Congress going to do with it, and it's part of my answer. That when I want to be appointed to a committee, 
I bring my request and my positions and my values to, in my case, the Republican Steering Committee, asking for a committee assignment. If I wanted to raise everyone's taxes in the United States of America, the House Republican Steering Committee is not going to appoint me to the House Ways and Means Committee. If I wanted to undercut the United States military, tie the hands behind the back of our admirals and our generals, I would not be appointed by the House Republican Steering Committee to the House Armed Services Committee. When you get appointed to a committee, it's a reflection not only of the values of the person you're appointing, but also the values of the people who are choosing to appoint you to that committee. So that what the resolution ended up passing, the resolution that passed did not name names. It ended up attempting to go down the, the world of the very slippery slope world of moral equivocation. As Doug Collins pointed out on his House floor speech, he said, what about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses if you're going to name all these religions? Why wouldn't you leave those out? You're talking about death threats against Jewish members of Congress and Muslim members of Congress? He said, what about me? I get death threats, and I'm not Jewish or Muslim. And as he's saying that, I'm thinking of the shooting of Steve Scalise. That was filled with hate. Why are we not going after that hate? And they ended up submitting a resolution that was marked at 328, submitted to the other party at 340 for a debate that started at 4 o'clock. And I voted against the resolution because it didn't go far enough, that it didn't name names, that it was spineless and watered down. And by the way, for colleagues who voted yes, I'm not criticizing them. If you read the text, it's text that this room is going to agree on, maybe as text that if you're graduating kindergarten and going to the first grade, that every American should sign off on. We should all read and agree that all of these different things are bad. She's going to do it again. And I am rooting for, and by the way, I, I recognize in my remarks on the, in the House floor, I recognize Congressman Nadler, Congressman Deutsch, Congressman Gottheimer. You know, it, it was, it, it took time in my speech to recognize those on the other side at that moment, Chairman Engel. There are people at that moment who are speaking out publicly to condemn the remarks by name. And I just want to call balls and strikes on this accurately and honestly. When it happens again, we're going to have to really come down on it forcefully. For those uh, members who are going to House leadership and House leadership is telling them that the play call is not to confront it head on, I'm rooting for those members to be successful in being able to take control of their party. In 2008, 2012, and 2016 at the Democratic National Convention, there was a move to put language into the Democratic Party platform that would have been moving their party in the wrong direction on the issues that we're here focused on. It's going to happen again in 2020. I want those Democrats who get it to be successful in <laughs> fighting that down. But if they don't confront this now, it's going to be more of a challenge for them to confront next year. The Republicans have been victims of this too on different issues in the past where expectations are set and then you don't deliver. Actually, I like your T-shirt. It says, you promised, sir. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of people in America across the political spectrum who they have expectations and they're disappointed when those expectations are not met, as they should be. Well, there's an expectation that is out there amongst a base on the issues that we're here talking about this morning, who if they are not confronted successfully now, 
are going to be looking to run the table to change the Democratic Party platform in 2020. The Labour Party in the UK, the Corbynism of the party, has resulted in now members of Parliament saying, this isn't the party I signed up for. Joe Lieberman said on a, you know, a news interview that I saw him, say, this is the Democratic Party that, that I remember. I want them to be, we, we, I want a healthy two-party system in our country. I don't want to see a takedown. I happen to be a Republican. I don't want to see a takedown of the Democratic Party where there's one party rule in our country. And by the way, diversity of debate and thought of people is great for our politics, for the policies that come out of Congress. That's good and that's healthy. The BDS movement can use a really important assist by Congress. When you are in charge of a chamber, you can, as the leadership of that chamber, number the first 10 or so bills of the House, of the Senate, and those are your top priority items. Senate 1 was a bill to condemn the BDS movement and to empower states and local governments to be able to take action to fight back against the BDS movement. And also understanding, and might have been mentioned just before I got here, and I do apologize, I came here right from the House floor as soon as I was able to put my car in the machine and vote. But you know, I, I heard that uh, you know, we were talking about the founding of BDS. That founder tried to come here just a couple weeks ago. His, his visa, he, was, he went to the airport. He wasn't able to make the trip. I wasn't one of the people who were was too disappointed about that. He's blatantly anti-Semitic. And he was coming to spread his hate. There, there are resolutions and there is legislation. Resolutions are good to be able to stand together with a strong bipartisan vote and send a powerful message. If the text of your resolution is strongly worded. There's a resolution that was introduced by Brad Schneider. It has bipartisan co-sponsorship. Uh, it sends a powerful message as it relates to BDS. For those who are pushing to have it passed, I would say great. But we need to go further than that and actually pass legislation with teeth in it. Let's send a message and do something about it. So as far as policy, what's going on in Congress, there's part of that conversation that's very personal. Uh, it's upfront and close battle um, that I wanted to address with specifically as it relates to uh, a freshman representative. Um, and there's actually there's two of them in particular. Uh, there are others who tolerate that. I wouldn't say that these other members are anti-Semitic, but they seem to be providing cover. They don't mind those positions, that rhetoric. They have a base back home in their district that is pro-BDS. So even if they're not pro-BDS, they have people in their district who volunteer for them, who support them, who are. There are people who know better but are making a political calculation not to do anything about it. Because it's nice for them to have their powers, their perks, their gavels. And then there are people who know better and are doing something about it. Now that fourth category used to be the Democratic Party. And I'm rooting for that category of the Democratic Party to be successful in increasing their numbers. I'm not saying this. I really hope that doesn't come across uh, as rooting against the Democratic Party. I'm rooting for them to be successful in pushing back on it. 
And then the other role with regards to Congress uh, is with what resolutions, what statements, but also what we can pass with teeth. H.R. 336 is the companion bill. In the House, it was introduced by uh, Michael McCall of, of Texas. Uh, that legislation, it's um, it's something that if if passed and goes to the president and signed into law, it does a lot. That's good. I briefly want to touch in touch on what the federal government has accomplished over the course of the last couple of years on these issues that matter. I think it sends in strengthening the relationship to the United States and Israel, in standing with the the Jewish community here in the United States and abroad. There are a lot of there's been a lot of positive action that we should be very happy about. By the way, the white supremacists in Pittsburgh and the white supremacists in California, they both hated Donald Trump because he was he's too supportive of Jews. There are some who try to attach the president of the United States to those two shooters. I think that's outrageous. It's disgusting. It's wrong to attempt to do that. But the president moved the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, signed the Taylor Force Act into law, recognized Israel's control of sovereignty over the Golan Heights. We are, while attempting to at times weigh in on an issue that affects, say, the Israelis and the Palestinians, we don't have to accuse both sides of terror when a Palestinian terrorist murders an innocent American or Israeli. Being a neutral arbiter doesn't require us to not be an honest broker. We can just state the fact that Hamas uses innocent women and children as human shields and pay people to get shot. At the United Nations, and Ambassador Haley was doing a fantastic job there leading the way on behalf of the United States and our administration to fight back on anti-Semitism at the UN. And by the way, the the State of the Union address, when support was being built in the U.S. for a United Nations, they said we need to combat racism however it rears its ugly form. The next word of that speech, you're trying to decide what what did FDR mean by racism. The next word of his speech is Hitler. At the U.N. right now, they're actually promoting a value base that is the exact opposite of the reason why the United Nations was created in the first place. So while we are upset, and I, it was a, you know, why are things, you know, why are, you know, how can things be this good when they're this bad? I mean, that's, that was one way of putting it, the rabbi put it. While we're here talking about a real threat that exists in American politics, in the halls of Congress, on college campuses, coming from what seems like all different kinds of directions depending on what the, the conversation and debate is of the day. What should not be lost on us is also how much good is also happening and how many ways with strong bipartisan support there's more good that can be done in the weeks and the months that are ahead. That should be our pledge as members of Congress, as people who gather uh, this afternoon at the Heritage Foundation, whether it be as Americans on Yom HaShoah Day, it's not just reflection of the atrocities of murdering six million innocent Jews and millions of others and saying and fulfilling a pledge that we will remember, we will never forget, this will never happen again. And then as we identify to look to crush that threat is also to be proud of the way the United States of America is leading the way 
in doing many good things. I guess how can things be this good if they're this bad? Well, we're seeing a lot of good progress, and I would encourage all of uh, those in government with the motivation and the power to do something about it to do more uh, because in some respects the threat's gotten worse, not better. Uh, by the way, one quick fun side note. If any of you uh, go to visit Longworth 1517, which is my old office, which is now Congressman Omar's new office. <laughs> You'll see in the doorway, uh, they, they haven't painted over it. You'll still see the imprint of my mezuzah. So it's just a little... Um, a- anyway, we, we, uh, I, I would encourage some of my colleagues who agree with everything that I'm saying but aren't saying anything publicly about it as to, to, to join on, join together, work together, uh, and let them come along for the ride. Lead them as opposed to being led by them, and I'll take America in the right direction. Thank you again for having me. Thank you so much, Congressman. Our next and final panelist is Matthew Nee. Matthew Nee is a veteran political data scientist with WP, WPA Intelligence. He has uh, extensive experience providing consulting to uh, a multitude of candidates on all levels of politics, state and national. Uh, He earned two graduate degrees from Yale University and uses his background in statistics and psychology and data uh, to create uh, incredible models for candidates. Um, We're here today um, to hear Matt's perspective um, on anti-Semitism and how it plays out on both sides of the political spectrum, and thank you for being here today. Thanks, Joel, and thanks, Emily, for putting this on, and thank you, Heritage, for having us and caring about this really important subject. Uh, in this talk, I will lay out how anti-Semitism is distributed in American society, how both parties are handling the politics of anti-Semitism, and how we can protect and strengthen norms against anti-Semitism going forward. First, the good news. Jews seem to be well-liked in America. A recent Pew study shows that Jews, Catholics, and Protestants are about equally well-liked, with other religions significantly behind. This is equally true among Democrats and Republicans. Similarly, other, other studies such as the NES and, uh, and other bits of social science consistently say that Jews are among the most well-liked groups in American society among almost all American subgroups. However, these studies are based on self-reports, so at minimum, they show that norms against anti-Semitism are as powerful as any anti-racist norms we have. And I don't mean norms in the sense of Trump's Twitter. I mean norms like taboos, boundaries that when crossed get you judged and kicked out of polite society. Yes, so this does mean some anti-Semites are hiding their feelings, but this is not a bad place to start. However, as we all know, being well-liked overall does not mean we're safe, as we discovered on Sunday, uh, Saturday. Uh, these norms are slowly being hollowed out. Indeed, the politics of anti-Semitism is largely a battle to enforce these norms, redefine the boundaries of these norms, undermine these norms, or exploit these norms. Which brings me to the bad news. Anti-Semitism is a growing threat in America today. Here it is important to distinguish between anti-Semitic policies and beliefs from anti-Semitic harassments and hate crimes. Anti-Semitic viewpoints work through the political system and must contend with norms. Harassment and hate crimes lie outside the political system and opt to violate norms. The left dominates American political anti-Semitism, while the right wing seems to dominate violent anti-Semitism. 
According to the FBI, anti-Semitic hate crimes make up 58% of all religion-based hate crimes. High-profile acts of violence in particular are most often committed by white supremacists. But thankfully, violent acts of anti-Semitism are relatively rare. The ADL reports 39 acts of anti-Semitic assault in 2018 and 1,840 nonviolent acts. But what about anti-Semitism as a political problem? It exists on both the right and the left. But right-wing anti-Semitism in the United States has been almost entirely politically marginalized. No one who matters is really standing up for these people. But left-wing anti-Semitism is gaining a foothold and advancing as a true political force. So let's start with right-wing anti-Semitism. As we should, we hear a lot about about white nationalists. They certainly commit their share of atrocities. However, no one has really been able to show that they're a political constituency of a meaningful size in this country. They are at most 8,000 Klansmen. Studies indicate that the vast majority of hateful Twitter activity in 2016 was from a small, relatively small number of accounts. When they try to have rallies, the best they've ever been able to do is a couple hundred people. When they bet on having a, a giant rally in D.C. last summer, that was going to be their flagship rally, they got a couple dozen people. And a study found that only 5.6% of white Americans have what could be described as, as alt-right views, comparable or fewer than a number who think the moon landing is a hoax. Be- because white nationalism thankfully violates huge taboos in our society, those on the left find it in their political interest to exaggerate the power of these groups and misleadingly suggest Republican leaders are somehow trying to elicit their support. To accomplish this, they allege a slew of everyday words and phrases are dog whistles. But let's call the claim that President Trump is regularly dog whistling to these groups what it is, a conspiracy theory. They're saying Donald Trump is carefully wording his speeches to avoid offending people and sneak in secret messages to a constituency that no one can show exists in significant numbers to ever actually matter. And is a secret Nazi sympathizer, despite his consistently pro-Israel and pro-Jewish policies. Really. And somehow, this is supposed to be part of Republican campaign strategy without anyone in that world spilling the beans. It's incredibly implausible. Others on the left instead claim that criticizing mostly vaguely Jewish billionaires uh, for who fund general interest liberal policies are making anti-Semitic claims of Jewish money conspiracies. Yet, so many of these same critics will turn around and decry Sheldon Adelson's pro-Israel spending and seem like that's okay to them. But, unfortunately, for Democrats, the usefulness of these attacks is often just too tempting to pass up, even if it's not good for the fight against anti-Semitism. Partisan messaging on anti-Semitism is an excellent amplifier to their attacks claiming that Republicans are bigots. So they can make allegations that create news cycles that feed the larger narratives on white supremacy and anti-Semitism, and then they can pivot to other identity attacks that they like better. This is, again, can be effective, it's tempting, but it is also dangerous. Tying center-right to white nationalist anti-Semitism and portraying the white nationalist movement as politically powerful, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, emboldens white nationalists and stymies coalition building. And spreading the falsehood that President Trump believes there are good Nazis who chant Jews do not, will not replace us certainly does the same. So what about left-wing anti-Semitism? Now, we don't see left-wingers, fortunately, 
perpetrating mass shootings at synagogues. But we do see important progressive political figures making anti-Semitic comments, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel policies such as BDS, and counter-hierarchical identity politics frameworks that are harmful to Jews. As Max dove into earlier, campus groups as SJP routinely engage in anti-Semitic activity with impunity. And anti-Semitic statements on the left aren't delivered by alleged dog whistle. They are often delivered by Bullhorn or the New York Times International Edition. Instead of critiquing, instead of critiques of spending by megadonors with no nexus to Jewishness, we see attacks that more or less directly claim Jewish financial control of American institutions for Jewish purposes. We don't see major elected officials on the right making explicitly hostile statements towards Jews and Israelis. Yet on the left, we have Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Hank Johnson, the leaders of the Women's March, and, of course, the several members of Congress who have strong ties to hate preacher Louis Farrakhan. The, pro the proliferation of this rhetoric stems from a shift in the left's own ideological structures regarding identity. Leftist approaches to bigotry are now often based in intersectional critical theory. The idea that racism equals prejudice plus power, and a white supremacist, patriarchal, cisnormative, heterosexist, ableist, I can keep listing these things, I'm going to stop now, etc., power structure, is deeply integrated into all parts of American society, law, politics, language, and culture. As such, any policy, person, or cultural artifact that treats people equally rather than favoring them in the inverse order of their degree of oppression is itself branded as white supremacy because it reinforces existing oppressive power structures. Jews are considered privileged, so get the short end of the stick under these policies, as again Max has discussed. Uh, and since oppressed groups cannot be racist against oppressor groups by definition, anti-Semites who are collectively considered more oppressed get a pass. This dilution of norms against white supremacy to weaponize it against political opponents is extremely dangerous to Jews. White supremacists kill Jews. Systems of white supremacy, by the left's irresponsibly broad defi definition, adds a whole lot of things that don't. And they can criticize those things. Just don't use that word for it that, such that it dil dilutes something that we can all agree on with things that are actually quite controversial. But because they do this, we can't always come together, even on this easy thing, because when people talk about white supremacy... The, white, the, the right is talking about David Duke, and the left is talking about Ben Shapiro. <laughs> Thus, the left is blind to anti-Semitism that doesn't fit the oppressor-oppressed mold. The demographics of anti-Semitism make this especially dangerous. A large percentage of anti-Semites, especially those on the left, are not, anti are, not an are not white racists and are not even white. The Anti-Defamation anti League's studies of anti-Semitism, which use a battery of tropes instead of directly asking feelings, consistently show anti-Semitism is far more heavily concentrated in minority communities, particularly Muslim Americans and foreign-born Hispanics. Based on this prevalence data and, and population numbers from the census, it appears that there are about as many, maybe more, African-American and Hispanic anti-Semites in the United States than white ones today. Leftist identity ideology also grows white anti-Semitism as well. There's a real risk of woke white anti-Semitism rising among young, young progressives. They see Jews as a privileged class that benefits from systems of white supremacy. And, and as we discussed, this is already contributing to skyrocketing anti-Israel attitudes among these demographics. 
we're already seeing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict being increasingly shoehorned into racial oppression and colonialism paradigms that make absolutely no sense in the Middle Eastern context. So when Democrats pass resolutions defining anti-Semitism as part of the general parade of anti-minority bigotry, they are conveniently erasing most of their own anti-Semitism problem and leaving only the rights. And here again is where norms come in. If the left succeeds at establishing norms to protect this hatred against Jews, when the leader spewing the hate happens to be part of a group considered more oppressed, then it is open season on Jews for those with the right identities. So what do we do? As I'm not an expert in counterterrorism or law enforcement, I won't pretend to have all the answers regarding anti-Semitic crimes. But politically, the Jewish community and their allies are in what is sometimes a tough spot. To the extent that some wish to work within a Democratic Party, it is necessary to fight the uphill factional fights against this ascendant progressive faction. But Ilhan Omar's total victory in the House is a reminder that these problematic Democrats are well protected by a growing progressive wing that is far more influential than the Jewish community is, even were the Jewish community united, which it isn't. In fact, Omar's anti-Semitism scandal made her the number 10 fundraiser of all House candidates last quarter, raising $832,000. The Act Blue crowd has issued their verdict on targeting American Jews in Israel, and that verdict is that it pays. The most problematic Democratic members of Congress are unfortunately in safe seats and seats that are not vulnerable to more centrist primary opponents. So there are few, if any, scalps out there to claim to deter anti-Semitic activity. Ilhan Omar replaced Keith Ellison. Rashida Tlaib has her particular Michigan base in the impeachment card. Hank Johnson has Cynthia McKinney's old seat. And trying to oust CBC members from their heavily protected districts over ties to Farrakhan is simply a non-starter. Thus, anti-Semitism problems in Congress are unfortunately not a failure of democracy, but a reflection of it. And the best that can be done is to isolate and disempower these, these problematic members before they continue to, to, to use their power against, for anti-Semitism and continue to legitimize anti-Semitism in wider society. Those who wish to work within a Democratic Party can try to hold the line in more moderate dis district primaries to keep their numbers from growing. On the right, the answers are easier. We have some house cleaning to do from time to time and have our own coterie of internet wackos, but combating political anti-Semitism aligns with our desires, ideologies, and interests. Resource optimism, optimization aside, lighting up anti-Semites is pure profit for us. We message on it now, and I see plenty of appetite to continue doing so. Holding Democrats accountable for extremists in their midst, like Omar and her, like Omar and her enabler AOC and others, is an easy replacement for the Pelosi-oriented messaging that has lost some of its effectiveness in recent years. And it pairs well with anti-socialist, anti-identity politics messaging, since it usually features the same avatars. Messaging on anti-Semitism may also be ideal for those suburbanites and, moder and moderates that Republicans need to win back to take back the House. These are groups where Democratic attacks on Republicans as racist or sexist have made some inroads. This can, this can allow these voters to position themselves both strongly against white supremacy and also strongly against, uh, against, against leftist identity politics extremism. When successful, it places the extreme left as violators of anti-racist norms, making it harder for them to deploy these norms to shield those like Omar from valid criticisms. All of these messages must be carefully tailored, targeted, and tested, of course. 
and they should be combined with issue research and campaigns designed to find and target extremist leftist ideologies where they're weak and unpopular. Republicans holding Democrats responsible for anti-Semitic policies and statements could also make it easier to pressure pressure moderate Democrats into doing the right thing. Already, two swing district candidates Omar has transferred money to have returned it. Anyone concerned with anti-Semitism, regardless of party affiliation, should be happy to see serious electoral costs imposed for cozying up to those guilty of anti-Semitic words and deeds. In summary, norms against anti-Semitism in America are strong, but are threatened by political actors, especially on the left, who seek to redefine, dilute, and undermine them for political gain. And increasingly, violent actors outside the political system, especially on the right, are committing atrocities against Jews. Fighting the rise of political anti-Semitism requires protecting these norms in ways that are politically feasible by coinciding with existing actors' interests and desires. Doing that requires conducting vital research to interrogate these new forms of anti-Semitism and devise messages against them and their supporters. And it requires a commitment to fighting, to fighting anti-Semitism of all varieties, no matter where it comes from. Thank you. Thank you to each of you for being here today. Um, Unfortunately, we only have time for two questions. Um, So we're going to do those now and then. uh, uh, But we we could talk all day about this, and I really, really appreciate this in-depth conversation. It's been very helpful. Um, Lady on the front row here. And hold on one second. We're going to get you a microphone. Very briefly, um, our organization takes has been for 15 years has been taking first responders to Israel to train them in counterterrorism, cybersecurity, and school safety. And I actually have about 30 to 40 recommendations from first responders who've been on this program saying how this has enabled them to save lives. And yet we're being boycotted um, by the BDS movement, and they're systematically doing this, which I won't go into detail about, but. My question is for Congressman Zeldin. How can we um, take on specific BDS efforts that are actually undermining the safety and security of the United States um, because of training programs like, our, like ours and others? What, what do you recommend? Say, so depending on where your local municipality is, whether it's your state government, the tools that are available uh, to those elected officials where that police department is being wronged, uh, they need to step up and, and do the right thing. There are, uh, in New York State, for example, uh, even though you have different individuals who are closely aligned with uh, some of the most active liberal uh, groups and, and individuals that you might know about nationally, uh, New York City Council and in Albany, there have been many positive uh, actions taken uh, to combat BDS where uh, you might be surprised and it would be important to crush you know, stereotypes and norms by looking at that New York state example. Um, so I would challenge your elected officials uh, where you, and they need to hear from you. It's a constituency, by the way, that also influences elections because you have the firefighters, the police, your families, plus people who aren't firefighters or EMTs or police support stronger public safety. Use your muscle 
and communicate and, and advocate and get them to, to take action. The other piece about the effort on college campuses band together with also with, with other groups, you know, you work with stand with us, even though they might be primarily focused on colleges um, they their experience, their network, when everyone bands together, makes everyone stronger. Uh, so I think it's actually a very natural alliance for your group to be working with Stand With Us and, and like-minded groups. You know, the, the, the students who are being targeted with blatant anti-Semitism, they're not just going up against other students. They're going against students, faculty, and administrators. Uh, so where you have, you know, if, if you're FDNY, you're NYPD, and you're motivated – will help out those students who are on, you know, the campus of NYU and Columbia work together and have each other's back. Just to add briefly in terms of just the messaging around that, and this is something that does appear on campuses as well, uh, this campaign, this specific campaign, is actually echoing very old anti-Semitic tropes, uh, which blame Jews for societal problems. In this case, they're saying that Israel and Jewish organizations are to blame, partly at least, uh, for poli- police brutality against people of color in this country. Uh, it sounds ridiculous, but that's what they're doing. Uh, and so part of what we have to do, I think, is to educate people about why that is an anti-Semitic trope and furthermore talk about why it's fundamentally against our society's values to scapegoat any minority, be it Jews or anyone else, for societal problems and how much more difficult that makes it to solve those problems, to come together to build coalitions to solve those problems. These campaigns are perpetuating the problems they're claiming to fight against. And I think we have to state that very clearly. And the gentleman, third row from the back. Or, sorry, third row from the front. Um, My question relates to um, what I see is, it summarizes what's going on politically is sort of the corporatization of the Democratic Party. Uh, Yes, the right-wing anti-Semitism has always been there and it's been violent, but what potentially is more, I say, troubling or uh, potentially more damaging uh, is, the, is the left wing because it has the credibility and the respectability, uh, be it of college professors, college universities, uh, the w- women's movement, the New York Times, and media critics. And it is this particularly denial, but it seems like, from my progressive Jewish friends that this is going on. They, do, they still just perhaps, I don't know how you can uh, uh, reach through to them. Um, I don't think the people here need to hear it. I think you're t- preaching to the choir. But I, I, I don't know what you can say about how you communicate this, this perhaps greater dan- danger to liberal Jews. I'll I'll take it. Um, So one thing I think that's really important, especially with the polarization, the political polarization we're seeing in our society where people are kind of collecting themselves in tribes and whenever their tribe gets attacked, they sort of become more inward and defend it almost reflexively regardless of the the substance of the issue. Um, I think the only really effective way to fight back against this anti-Semitism on the left is going to be from people on the left. And so you you see an example of that, for instance, with a group called uh, Progressive Zionists of California. Um, it's a grassroots organizations, or organization of people who uh, were delegates in the California Democratic Party. Some of them voted for Bernie in 2016. Some of them voted for Hillary. It's a diverse group. 
Uh, and they are actively dedicated to fighting anti-Semitism within their own party. And it's those types of efforts that I think are going to have a real impact. Unfortunately, I think in some cases, uh, you know, criticism or attacks on the Democratic Party from the right are, while well, even if they're, let's say, uh, justified in many cases, they are, um, it can also have the effect of making people retreat again into their tribe and just reflexively defend. Uh, it's tough. It's it's extremely frustrating because, again, there's real substance and real reasons to criticize, but we also have to be mindful of the practical impact. Are we actually fighting effectively re- decreasing it or or inspiring more of this reflexive tribalism? Um, so it's, it's complicated, and I think those types of grassroots organizations are what could really turn the tide here, multiplying those efforts. If, if I could just add, though, you know, so... On top of uh, many great points that were that was just made, my, my conversation, my conversations that I'll have with colleagues on the other side of the aisle who identify this as a problem and they're highly motivated to want to do something about it. When I and others speak up and apply pressure, they're coming to me directly, privately, and they're saying it's helping their cause in advocating, you know, to Speaker Pelosi, to Steny Hoyer to get action, to get a vote on something, to make progress, to whether it be making progress in a conversation or actual action. Now, they didn't get what they were looking for with regards to the resolution. It was watered down by others. But I, I think it's important to, again, call call it all out, uh, to, to be applying max pressure and backing up those Democrats who want to do the right thing uh, to give them support and, and encouragement. The other motivator in politics, um, or maybe the biggest motivator, if you ask people what's your what's your top three priorities, and they want to give you an honest answer, they'll they'll say re-election, re-election, re-election. Uh, there are districts. Yes, Congressman Omar is in a district where a Republican is not going to to beat her unless you split the Democratic vote like nineteen thousand ways. Um, you know, like the math doesn't add up in some of these districts, you know, where AOC is, where Rashida Tlaib is, and others. These are very Democratic districts, Maxine Waters. But there are over 30 Democrats in districts that were won by Donald Trump in 2016, and they're running again, and they want to keep control of the House. And I would apply to that part of the calculation that, listen, it's, this is not a good idea for us strategically as it relates to the vote. Donald Trump got about 25% of the Jewish vote in 2016. Mitt Romney got about 32%. Ronald Reagan got 40% in 1984. If you look at the, the trends, you could and you want to win Florida, whatever the angles are that work with the person you're talking to, whatever motivates them, uh, you have to appeal to to, to that. And uh, But I... In, in adding to the point that it is most important for the pressure to come internally within their own party, I would say it's very important for people, even if you're not in that, that party, to be applying max positive pressure. Just avoid the double standards and the moral equivalency because uh, that will get you in trouble and there's a slippery slope no matter who's engaging. Great. Thank you. And thank you all for being here. And let's give a round of applause to the panel.